0: and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we go to the word this morning, let's go to the Lord and ask his guidance on our time together. Father, we're thankful that you have revealed yourself to us in your word, that you have overseen the process of inscripturation and preservation, and that we can have confidence knowing that the text that we have before us is that which was originally delivered to uh, our forefathers, to the prophets and the apostles, and that we have the privilege to have copies of your word in our hands and that as we study your word, God the Holy Spirit uses it to transform our lives, to transform us into the character of Christ, that in us his glory may be seen and that we might be a testimony to the angels, and to the world around us. Now, Father, as we continue our study this morning and especially reflect upon what you teach about prayer in uh, the Scriptures, we know that it is important for us to understand these things and to apply them to our own prayer lives. We ask guidance and direction, and may the application be clear to us. In Christ's name, amen. Open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, and we're going to look at the section I skipped over last Sunday, which has to do with this particular prayer that Jesus provides for his disciples. And we have to remember the context, and that immediate context comes out of verses 7 and 8. Jesus is teaching by way of contrast. I want to bring that out a little bit because... Uh, every now and then I get some sort of negative response from people that I'm maybe a little too concerned with what the culture says or what people say that's wrong. Uh, Jesus was concerned about what people said that was wrong, and if you look at the Sermon on the Mount, it is an example of a perfect pedagogy. He is saying this is what the truth is, and this is how it's being distorted. It, it was a co- study in contrast, often, When you look in isolation at something that is the color white and you think, okay, that's white, I'm going to go down to uh, Lowe's and I'm going to pick up a can of white paint, you get down there and you see that there's 20 different shades of white. And unless you have the right objective standard of white that you want to contrast it to all these other shades, you're going to probably end up like I do and get home with the wrong color paint and have to go through that process of getting one that perfectly matches. And and, and in, in the teaching of divine truth, and the teaching of the Scripture, there's a lot of off-truth out there. It's not pure white. It's off-white. And it is the purpose of Satan as well as the objective of the sin nature of those who are suppressing truth and unrighteousness to distort truth. This is what the Pharisees were doing. Jesus is contrasting truth in terms of what God's word says with how it's practiced either by the uh, religious group in Israel who claims to be biblical, they claim to be uh, teaching what the Torah says, and here he contrasts it with, the non-Christians and what the non-Christians do, what the pagans do, what the heathen do. In verse 7, Jesus said, when you pray, do not use vain repetition as the heathen do. Now, I looked at that word for vain repetition last week, botologia, and it was a word that indicates not only saying something just over and over again, but it might even be saying something that is just gibberish, it is a onomatopoeic word. That means it is a word that sounds like what it is describing. <clears throat> it is a a word that is based on the fact that to the Greek ear that was unfamiliar with a foreign language, much like Americans are unfamiliar with any other foreign language when they hear somebody speaking Greek or Hebrew or uh, Korean or. Spanish or Russian, it all sounds the same. That's how the Greek words, the Greek came up with this word. It just sounded like people were saying bada, 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 bada. And so they came up, coined this word, bada logia, words that just sound like gibberish. It has a couple of different ways we can apply it. One is to the, to the tongue speech. In charismatic churches, and they had a comparable pattern in the ancient world in mystical religions, they would pray in ecstatic utterance. This was seen in especially places um, like um, like in Greece, where you had the rise of these um, uh, these mystery religions, and in places like the De- the temple <coughs> or the oracle of Delphi in, in Greece. The priestess would inhale these fumes. She sat over this hole in the ground, and and nobody knows exactly what was coming out at that time because it doesn't happen anymore, but some fumes were coming out of the earth, and she would inhale those, and she would probably become uh, demon-possessed, and she would speak in this kind of uh, ecstatic gibberish and people thought that that meant that she had entered into or identified with the God, and the God was now speaking through her. So in pagan thought, being able to pray in these sorts of prayer languages uh, that was uh, uh, illegible and meaningless to the any listener, that meant you were really spiritual. That same idea has been picked up by, the modern Pentecostal charismatic movement, they often say, well, the patterns that we see today may not fit some of the patterns in 1 Corinthians 14, but, but it's a prayer language. And my response to that is always, well, how do you know what you're saying? It's, you're praying because you don't understand anything coming out of your mouth. It may not even be a prayer and you say that it's more effective for you, how do you know if you don't know what you're praying for? How can you say it's more effective? Uh, those are just sort of some common sense, logical questions, uh, aside from questions from, from the text. But Jesus <clears throat> points this out, and another aspect of this vain repetition among the heathen, and heathen isn't a an insulting word. Uh, neither is pagan. These are not words that are chosen because they are pejorative. Now we live in a world where a modern culture dominated by politically correct speech, people are prone to immediately take offense at anything that, that, uh, they don't like. You may be ca- get identifying them, w- identifying them with a thoroughly objective, legal, historic term. And not mean anything negative by it. But they just don't like the fact that that's what they are. And so now they react in hypersensitivity and they claim that you're being racist or you're being insulting or you're being a sexist or you're being a homophobe or whatever it might be simply because they don't like being categorized by some name. And so for them, any name that categorizes them is automatically wrong. It's politically incorrect. Words like heathen and pagan, if you look them up in the dictionary, are technical terms that refer to anybody who has a belief system that is not influenced by a Judeo-Christian framework. So technically Muslims aren't heathen. They're Muslim. Because technically in some sense they borrowed so much from, Muhammad did, from the uh, from the Bible, he changed it, he twisted it. But it's distinct from things like Buddhism, Hinduism, Hinduism uh, New Age Spiritism, um, Druidism. All of these are different forms of, of paganism and heathenism, and that's distinguished from those who hold to a Judeo-Christian framework. So Jesus is... Um, not being uh, politically incorrect here. He's not being insulting. He is being technically accurate in the language that he is using, that those who were not out of a Judeo-Christian background operated a certain way, and then as now people uh, who were believers were influenced by the world. And the idea in paganism at that time was that if you just – said it enough times, if you had really long prayers and you just repeated what you wanted enough times, then God would answer your prayer. Now, I'm not talking about uh, asking God for something over a long period of time. This is asking for God a lot of times within a relatively short period of time in the same prayer. Uh, that's different from a prayer importuning God or coming continuously before God's throne of grace, maybe over decades, that God would answer a particular prayer. And God many times answers that prayer, but not in our timing. Someone asked me the other day, uh, how do we know when enough is enough? I'm not sure we do. It depends on what the context of the prayer is. I had someone that I began witnessing to in 1970, and it was not until 2005 that he became a believer. And over the course of those 35 years, I prayed many times for them to come to a clear understanding of the gospel and to become a believer. At any point, I could say after 10 years or 20 years, that, well, if God's going to answer that prayer, he would have done it by now. Uh, I'm just, I I should shut up about it. But that is going on in in a correct manner, continuing to pray for that, continuing to pray for our health, continuing to pray for somebody else's health, continuing to pray for any number of things. It legitimately should be repeated over and over again. But this is not talking about this, that that kind of a thing. It's talking about just within the same prayer, stretching it out for 15 or 20 minutes and just praying for the same thing over and over again from the mindset that somehow this is going to manipulate God into answering the prayer. And so Jesus says in in verses 7 and 8, number one, don't... Do like the heathens do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. See, that's the key sentence. He's saying that they think that if they just say it long enough, loud enough, and God will will basically say, okay, okay, I'm tired of listening to this. I'm going to answer your prayer. In contrast, then, he draws a conclusion in verse 8. Therefore, do not be like them. There is a difference between your prayer and the prayer of pagans. Do not be like them, for your Father knows the things you have need of before you ask Him. You don't need to get into a prayer and then ask Him 56 times for the same thing within that prayer, because God is omniscient. He knows what you're going to pray for, and He knew you would pray that prayer and pray pray those requests many, many years before you actually did it. The reason we pray is not to inform God of something He doesn't know. A lot of people pray that way. They, they, say, they, they remind God. I, I've heard that. And, and a lot of times that's just how we talk. But we ought to think a little bit more about how we consciously present our requests before God. And people act like, like, like God may be too busy. After all, he's worried about taking care of all those soldiers over in Afghanistan. He's worried about dealing with uh, world hung- hunger or world peace or whatever it is they think God's concerned about. He, he's been distracted. He's not really taking care of me and my situation or so-and-so situation, and he needs to be reminded, no, in God's omniscience, he knows all of the knowable, he never learns anything new, he never forgets anything, it's all eternally present before him, but he desires for us to bring these requests before him as an expression of our trust. We believe that trust, our ongoing faith, our walk by faith, is one of the basic spiritual skills in the Christian life. Not faith for justification, but the ongoing faith that characterizes the believer's life. Second Corinthians 5, 7, we walk by faith and not by sight. One of the ways we express our faith, or what we sometimes refer to as the faith rest drill, is through prayer. We articulate our requests before God, and that put, helps to put us in a mindset where, as it were, we are uh, psychologically more conscious of the fact that we're uh, uh, applying Second, First uh, Peter five seven. We're casting all our care upon Him because He cares. He cares for us. So Jesus says, "Your Father knows." the things that are that you have need of before you ask him. And again, I point out that he is talking to them in reference to, quote, your father, unquote. He's reminding them of a special relationship they have with the God of heaven. Now, as I'm going to point out as we go through this prayer, because this is how the prayer opens, that this is a, a unique concept in the Gospels. We're still in the age of Israel. We're still under the Mosaic law. But in the Old Testament, the idea of addressing the father from this much of a personal vantage point was not emphasized. You don't find that kind of expression in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, God is viewed as more the father of Israel. Israel is viewed as the firstborn of God. That's an important uh, relationship to uh, to emphasize there now by way of introduction this prayer is given a number of different names if you're a protestant this may be news to you i mentioned this to a pastor friend of mine the other day and he it was like a light bulb went off and he uh... he immediately remembered some line from a movie that had mentioned this and suddenly that scene made sense to him, which it had never, uh, never made sense, uh, before. And that is that if you're Roman Catholic, then the name of this prayer is the Our Father. I learned that when my, when I was barely a new pastor, some lady came in asking me questions about prayer, and she kept talking about the Our Father, and i after a while I said, wait a minute, i and she said it real fast, so it was like, like one word, and I said, wait a minute, what are you calling this prayer? And so she slowed down, and I said, well, I've never heard of this. What are you talking about? Then she said, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And I went, oh, okay. And suddenly that made sense to me that in in history, for example, even in, in the Old Testament, the title for many of the books in the Old Testament comes from the first two or three words in the book. Genesis, for example, the first word in the Hebrew text is Bereshit, in the beginning. So the title of Genesis in... And the Hebrew text, in a Hebrew Bible, is Bereshit. And the same thing with most other books in the Old Testament. So in the Middle Ages... Uh, in the Roman Catholic Church, any kind of official document was always titled by the first two or three words in that document. So, in Roman Catholic medieval tradition, this prayer was referred to not as the Lord's Prayer or some other title, but as the Our Father. Now, last week, if you were reading uh, anything about the news, uh, Pope Francis went to um, went to Israel and he prayed at the Western Wall, and then there was, he in in an impromptu fashion, as he was being driven over into the Palestinian-controlled territory, he had them stop at the Wall of Separation between Israel and the Palestinian Authority, and he got out and he went to the Wall, and according to the news article I read, it said he prayed the Our Father at the Wall, separating Israel from the Palestinian territories. See, if you'd read that last week, you wouldn't know what he was doing. See how important it is to come to church? You actually learn things that relate to everyday events. So and he, when he was at the Western Wall, he put a Spanish... I read an article on this also. He put a Spanish translation, wrote it out, folded it up, and stuck it in one of the cracks of the Western Wall, but it was the Our Father. The problem with this is that this fits that category of vain repetition that Jesus prohibited back in verse 7. Is it, it, the thought that if you just repeat in liturgy, this prayer, that somehow it's communicating something to God. It's a complete loss of the fact that this, the idea that this is a pattern for prayer, it's a template. It is not a, um, it's not something that was to be cited um, uh, in rote, although the idea of churches just reciting this uh, over and over again verbatim goes all the way back to the probably the end of the first century or beginning of the second century. Uh, here's an example from one of the earliest writings in the early church during the period of what is referred to as the Apostolic Fathers. No one knows who the author of this book was. It's simply called the Didache, from the Greek word meaning teaching, and it was called the Teaching of the Twelve. Now, this it wasn't something that was written by an apostle. There's a heck of a lot of debate over when it was written. Uh, a couple of oddballs put it earlier than 70 A.D., but most people would say it was written probably no earlier than the time period of 70 A.D., the destruction of the temple, and maybe as late as 150 or 175. So what this reflects is, it tells us, is the way the early church operated in the generation after the apostles. And in the Didache, chapter 8, verses 2 and 3, the Didache states, nor should you pray like the hypocrites, instead pray like this, just as the Lord commanded in his gospels, and then it lists the prayer verbatim, and then afterwards in verse 3 says, pray like this three times a day. So in the early church, believers were uh, exhorted to recite this prayer three times a day, just a rote liturgical prayer. But that's not what our Lord is talking about uh, when he is giving this as a model or pattern for prayer. When I was growing up, the term I, that I was <clears throat> always heard was that this was called the Lord's Prayer. And if you grew up uh, prior to the um, decision by the Supreme Court in 1963 to outlaw prayer in public schools, then every morning you would sing the um, sing the uh, Star Spangled Banner and you would say the Pledge of Allegiance. If you were in my sixth grade uh, elementary school class, you would then sing the uh, ballad of the uh, of the Alamo by by Marty Robbins. That was the year the John Wayne movie came out, and so that whole year we we sang that right after we sang the Star Spangled Banner, and then you would say, Yeah, all right, that's right, that's what Texans do, and then after that you would we we recited the Lord's Prayer every single. Every single uh, day at school until I get to guess I was in junior high back when we had junior high, not middle school, and then they they went to a, uh, a silent prayer. You sang, you sang the eyes of Texas. How could you do that? You're an Aggie. <laughs> that, that's almost blasphemy, Bruce. Anyhow, this was something that we did. All the time. And growing up in the church where I grew up, of course, I'm always saying this saying, Well, this is wrong. We shouldn't be doing it. It has nothing to do with anything. It's just this, this liturgical prayer. And uh, yet yeah, we did it just to go along because you didn't want to make waves. When I was a pastor of my first church, and this is often said in high churches, liturgical churches, especially Roman Catholic churches, they say the Our Father, of course, And and if you go to confessional and you've been really bad, then you'll be told to say 25 Our Fathers and 15 Hail Marys. And so then you have to go through that. And that, again, fits that pattern of vain repetition. Um, When I was in my first church, it was a union church. A lot of you all don't have any idea what a union church is, sort of like an interdenominational church, but it precedes that kind of ecumenism. Back in the 19th century, when new communities were founded, there wouldn't be enough Methodists, Baptists, uh, Lutherans, Presbyterians, whatever, Episcopals, to make their own denominational church. So they would start the first church, and it would be called a union church. Everybody could come together, but they weren't going to be denominationally exclusive. And so they would offer baptism by sprinkling, infant baptism, baptism by immersion, they would uh, they incorporated uh, various liturgies from different denominational backgrounds, so everybody would find something they were comfortable with and everybody would find things that they were uncomfortable with. But it was a union church, and so every single Sunday morning we sang the doxology and the Gloria Patri and we said the Apostles' Creed and recited the, the um, Lord's Prayer every single Sunday. Now, as I was there, there were more people coming from a church, uh, Bible church background in Houston, in Houston, and they would chafe at this. But this was a church where 50% of the people in the congregation were over the age of 55. They had been doing this and at that church since they were teenagers. You weren't going to change them. You know, you don't make mountains out of molehills, and you don't make non-essentials essentials and split churches over things like this, which is what a lot of young people do, uh, young pastors do. So, I, you know, you just bide your time until you, you, the younger generation sort of uh, becomes dominant and wait your time, and eventually change comes. You don't just come in and change everything overnight. Anyhow... So, this is some of the significance related to uh, this particular prayer. Another problem that comes up is people say, Why do we call it the Lord's Prayer? Jesus wouldn't have prayed this prayer because there's a confession in there, forgive us our debts. Jesus wouldn't have prayed this, so why do we call it the Lord's Prayer? That, and you hear this from people who get pastors who get a little bit self righteous, there's a tone there. We're better than them because we can read the text. We know Jesus wouldn't pray this. Yeah, but do you know anything about the English language or grammar? The Lord's Prayer, that little apostrophe S tells you it's a genitive. Now genitives can have 25 different nuances. One of the, one of the nuances is of, of relationship. The Father's Son. So if you have the phrase, the Lord's Prayer, we know automatically that it's not talking about a genitive of relationship. What The way some people want to take it is the Lord's Prayer. This is his prayer the way he prayed. Well, that's one way to take a genitive. Another one is a genitive of source. This is a prayer that we learned from the Lord. Oh, well, that makes perfect sense. We're not saying this is the prayer the Lord prayed. We're saying this is the prayer that came from the Lord, he's the one who taught this. That's what the Lord's Prayer means. If you want to read a, a, a meaningless or wrong meaning into that genitive phrase, you certainly can. You've got 25 different categories to choose from. Only one of them is right. It's sort of like uh, uh, <clears throat> some people get the idea when you say that, uh, uh, that the term blood of Christ isn't literal. It's figurative. It has a meaning. It relates to the, it relates to the death of Christ. It can relate to his spiritual death, his spiritual payment on the cross. It could relate to his physical death, but it does, as a figure of speech, it doesn't necessarily refer to the fact that Jesus bled to death. It's an idiom going back to Genesis 9. We've all learned this, that in Genesis 9, whoever sheds man's blood by man, his blood shall also be shed. The shedding of blood there is a, an idiom for it violently taking someone's life, even by poison. Poison, there's no bleeding. So death penalty wouldn't apply? No, we all understand that. It's a figure of speech. And people would hear this, and all of a sudden they'd learn that, oh, the blood of Christ doesn't mean physical blood. And all of a sudden they wouldn't sing any hymn that used the phrase blood of Christ. It's like, hello, don't you know the Holy Spirit uses the phrase blood of Christ like 50 times in the New Testament? Are you going to just quit reading anything that uses an idiom like that? I mean, we get silly in how we handle the English language and we make a mountain out of a molehill. So you can call it the Lord's Prayer, and you're perfectly fine because you know what it means, and I do as well. So other terms that are used to describe this prayer are the Disciples' Prayer, the Model Prayer, and the Pattern Prayer. But those really don't have much uh, purchase because if you talk to somebody who has no background in the Bible and you call it the, the pattern prayer, they're not going to have a clue what you're talking about. But if you use a phrase like the Lord's Prayer or even the Our Father, all of a sudden you're going to communicate with them. And of course the issue in, uh, in talking to unbelievers is communication. Now, <clears throat> when Jesus, when we look at this prayer just as an overview, there are three sections to it. There's the opening address, which is in verse 9b, our Father in heaven. And then there are three clauses, beginning in 9c, three clauses that express the desire of the one praying to see the implementation of the worship of God in place and to the the value of his kingdom. These are all expressed in Greek grammar and third-person imperatives. In English, we just have a second person, you do this. A third person is let this happen, may this happen. It, it expresses a wish or a desire. So he is saying may your name be hallowed or sanctified, may your kingdom come or may your will be done. Those are the three clauses that express his, his wish or his desire. All of those are focused upon God and his character and God's will. It is a theocentric prayer. This is not a prayer where, we, where the prayer is coming to God with a lot of personal needs. It's not a self-absorbed prayer. It is a God-absorbed prayer. It's followed by three petitions related to personal needs. First one, give us today uh, our daily bread. Second, forgive us our debts now that 's interesting because the parallel over in Luke and the one you probably memorized says, "Forgive us our trespasses and there's something really interesting in that terminology because in Jewish thought, uh, debt could be financial, but debt could be an incurred obligation because you have offended somebody or you have sinned against somebody. You have sinned against God, so we are indebted to God, and that sin is a debt. So Paul, in Colossians chapter 2, uh, verses 9 and 10, says that on the cross, Christ what? He canceled our debt. The debt of our sin was nailed to the cross. It's that, that, that same idea that's there. So in Jewish thought, a debt... What had to do with a penalty. Now we're going to see a really interesting connection on Thursday night and you're going to discover in the next verse we get to that it's something that has been taken out of context and taught as a financial principle by hundreds of thousands of, of publications and pastors and whatever has nothing at all to do with finances but has everything to do with spiritual indebtedness. But you'll have to listen Thursday night to get that. We'll tie it together. It's interesting how these things sort of come together. So in the last part, there's three requests. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And then last, do not bring us into testing, but deliver us from the evil one, as opposed to the way you probably learned it as a child, deliver us from evil. This is very similar to a Jewish prayer that was used at the time. It's the, This is the Aramaic a translation of the Aramaic Kaddish. Now, Kaddish is from the uh, the etymology of that word comes from the Hebrew word kadash, which means holy or to be set apart, and in uh, rabbinical or Jewish language, a Kaddish is a prayer, and there are various prayers for different purposes, uh, and in fact, the, a, the funeral service is also called the Kaddish. So this is a term that's used in Jewish or rabbinical liturgy, and goes back uh, into the Second Temple period. I want you to notice the similar themes here. Uh, the Aramaic Kaddish reads, Uh, Exalted and hallowed be His great name in the world which He created according to His will. May He let His kingdom rule in your lifetime and in your days and in the lifetime of the whole house of Israel speedily and soon. Praise be His great name from eternity to eternity and to this say, Amen. Notice how it emphasizes hallowed be His name, emphasizes His kingdom, emphasizes um, Praise for His great name. All of this are similar, but there's some important distinctions there as well. One of those distinctions is that uh, God is addressed now as our Father. Second, it's clear what the kingdom is in uh, verse 10. It stated slightly different. It's a prayer for the kingdom to come. Um, as related to the message that Jesus is proclaiming at this time. But it's clear that in Judaism at the time, they still understand the kingdom to be physical in relation to the house of Israel. And then it closes with prayer. There's no mention of forgiveness of sin or issues related to evil. Those are important distinctions that Jesus is bringing out in his prayer because his disciples would have been familiar with this prayer. And what they're hearing is something that sounds similar, but there's correction going on here. But see, if you don't understand the historic background in rabbinic rabbinic thought, you, you miss the nuances that are coming across in the text. In other words, you read it, but you don't read it like the disciples would have read it. You don't hear it the same way they Heard it, so now you can see that. Oh yeah, Jesus is is not giving them something totally new, but he is straightening out again, just like he's been doing since since the middle of chapter five. He is giving a corrective to the distortions and the misrepresentations in Pharisaical uh, theology. Okay, I've already covered this. The three great points: the opening address in verse nine the three clauses expressing their uh, desire regarding the worship of God and the value of his kingdom in verse 9c through 10, the three petitions for their own needs. And then following that, there is an explanation about forgiveness. Now, the forgiveness both within the body of of the prayer and afterward is forgiveness related to other people. It's not talking about forgiveness, positional forgiveness at the cross. It's not talking uh, necessarily about uh, forgiveness in terms of confession of sin at the beginning. There is the re- uh, the prayer for and the request for to forgive us our debts or forgive us our trespasses, but don't stop there. It, take the whole thought. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. The emphasis there is on that horizontal element of forgiveness of one another, not primarily on the uh, experiential forgiveness uh, from God. Okay, so we come to the verse, the first statement, Matthew six nine, starts off our Father. This praying to God as the Father, as their personal Father in heaven, is unique. You don't find this in the Old Testament. Uh, fifteen times only, only fifteen times in the Old Testament is God referred to as Father. Where this does occur, the emphasis is on his relationship to the nation Israel. They are his firstborn son. He's never referred to in the Old Testament as the f- father of an individual or of human beings in general. So you don't have this perverse doctrine that came out of Protestant liberalism, the universal fatherhood of God. Um, so, and, and then we come to the first book in the New Testament, the first book, Discourse of the Lord in the Sermon on the Mount, and he uses the term Heavenly Father 13 times. This is a significant shift, in th- and, and that's just 13 times in the Sermon on the Mount. He used this in 516, 545, and 548. He's going to use it in six one, six four, six six, six eight, six fourteen, and fifteen, six eighteen, six 6.32, and 7.11. What does that tell us? That he's talking to these disciples as those who have a personal relationship with God. Now, I keep laboring that point because there are too many who are saying Jesus is talking to a mixed multitude. He's especially making allusions to the unbelievers in the crowd that they just don't have the right kind of righteousness to get into heaven. And I keep pointing this out jesus isn 't talking about imputed righteousness in this section he 's talking to disciples who are already believers he 's telling them the kind of experiential righteousness that is needed for the kingdom to come, just like Moses told the um, the the conquest generation about the kind of righteousness Israel had to have if they 're going to stay in the land and experience the full blessing of God. This is all about Phase two Christian living—it's not about how to become a believer, and of course, he's not talking to Christians, to church-age believers. He's talking to Jews under the um, under the Mosaic covenant. It has application to us because we're both waiting, waiting for the kingdom. So he starts off and he says, "In this manner," and this is a Greek word, "hutos," which usually at the beginning of a sentence says, "In this manner that I'm about to tell you about." it's looking forward in the sentence not to something he's already said so here he's saying thus or in this manner translated correctly in the new king james in this manner therefore pray and the word therefore pray is a present imperative now it has its prosukamai the omai at the end indicates that it's what's called a deponent verb which means it has a middle form grammatically but it has a an active meaning. I point that out because there's always novices who are trying to learn some Greek, and they look at the conjugation here and say it's a middle voice, and they try to figure out how to translate it as a middle or a passive. You can't do it. Uh, back when I was teaching Greek a lot, at least three times a year, I'd get some pastor calling me and saying, how do you translate this 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 prayer verb as a passive? <laughs> you don't. It has an active meaning. And it's a present imperative, which means this is something that should continuously characterize, characterize your life. The Father is identified as the Father in the heavenlies. It's a plural noun in the, in the Greek. Is the God in the heavens. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So this is talking about the ultimate heaven. Paul talked about three heavens, the atmosphere, the universe, the starry sky, and then ultimately the heaven of heavens, which is God's domain. Uh he is in the heavenlies. He is in the heavens. This would refer to the third heaven. He says, hallowed be thy name. This is an aorist passive imperative again. So it's a it's a command. You say, wait a minute, you're commanding God in a prayer? I've had people say that. How can you command God? This see, see this is the name and claim it crowd comes along and says, we have to tell God what to do. These are all imperatives. Now you misunderstood the misunderstand the imperative. There's an imperative of command, which is what a uh, drill sergeant gives his troops, and then there is an imperative of request, which is how uh, Daniel used imperatives to Nebuchadnezzar. It is should be an uh, imperative of request means uh, please or if it's your will, would you do this? Uh, it's the same form, but you have to understand that you don't say, uh, you don't give a command to the person in authority over you. It's it's a request. So this is a request to God. It's a third person, which means it's not you do this, but we wish or we desire to do this. It is our desire that your name would be uh sanctified, which means to be set apart, or to be revered or honored. Now, this idea that God's name is holy is found throughout the Old Testament, especially in the Psalms. Psalm 30, verse 4, Sing praise to the Lord, you saints of his, and give thanks at the remembrance of his holy name. See, his name is holy. So when we come along and say, may your name be hallowed, we're not saying may some new holiness be added to you because God is absolute. He cannot get any more holiness. What we are saying is is may your, the, the holiness of your name be realized in the lives of people and in the world. It is a, cre- a, a, a request that God's name should be reverenced or honored as it should be. Psalm 97.12, the psalmist says, Rejoice in the Lord, you righteous, and give thanks at the remembrance of his holy name. It is already holy. We don't make it holy. Same thing in Psalm 103, verse 1, and Psalm 111, verse 9, all statements talking about how God's name is holy, but in the request we're saying may it be honored or revered as holy. And then we get into the whole idea of the name of God, the idea of the name of god name also indicates his character or his essence that his character who he is should be honored and revered we also see in the Old Testament that there is a prayer to also sanctify and make his name uh holy or hallowed isaiah nineteen twenty three this is at the or isaiah twenty nine twenty three rather Reads, but when he sees his children, the work of my hands in his midst, they will hallow my name and hallow the Holy One of Jacob and fear the God of Israel. And so this is a call that the Jews are to turn back to him and to recognize and honor God's name in their experience. Ezekiel, also written in Ezekiel 36:23 which is a prophecy, it's in a, pure, uh, in, in a framework where there's judgment on the nation, Is there being rebellion, and God says, talking about the future, and I will sanctify my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, because Israel went into idolatry, that caused God's name to be disrespected among the nations. I will sanctify my great name in the future, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst, and the nations shall know, that I am the Lord, says the Lord God, when I am hallowed or revered in your eyes. See, that has a direct application to understanding the opening of this prayer. Hallowed be thy name. The hallowing of God's name based on Ezekiel thirty six twenty three comes when the kingdom is established. It is a future time when Israel has been restored to, to the land and are now walking with the Lord in obedience. So what I'm pointing out here, we'll come back to to finish next time, is this prayer, at least the opening part of it, is oriented to the kingdom message that Jesus is giving at this time in his ministry. You, this this prayer really has no application beyond that time period, because there's no mention now to, uh, no, no message now of repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But that's what the mission was there. Jesus had that message. The apostles are about to be sent out to declare that message, and they are to pray consistent with that message, that God's name be revered and respected among His people, and that this would be part of the bringing in of the kingdom. So we'll close out there with just getting into the introduction to this prayer this week and come back to look at the rest of it next Sunday morning with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to look at this important text of Scripture. We will gain from it principles that do apply to prayer for us, but also see where this does not apply to us. Father, we're thankful that we have you to come to in prayer. We are to pray without ceasing. We are to pray with thanksgiving. We are to uh, come before you in prayer continuously because you desire to hear us, express our trust in you, and express our desire for things to come about in this life that honor and glorify you. We need to learn to pray in a way that focuses on you and not just on our uh, self-absorbed needs. We need to become more God-centered and less me-centered in our prayers. Help us to understand to do that. Father, we pray for anyone here that's uncertain of their salvation or unsure of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. He paid the penalty for your sins on the cross when he was separated from God the Father during those three hours where he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Uh, It was the time when he bore in his body on the tree our sins. He who knew no sin became sin for us, that the righteousness of God, your righteousness, might be found in us. Now, Father, we pray that those who are here who may not be saved would understand the gospel clearly, that it doesn't matter who they are, what they've done, uh, what they haven't done. Uh, The only issue is trust in Christ, for he is the one who paid the penalty and it's our response to trust in him. We are to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and we will be saved. Now, Father, we pray that you would challenge us with what we've studied and learned this morning. In Christ's name, amen.